Amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me, if you would, once again to the book of Philippians as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, as we look at the fruit of abounding love. I was talking with someone this week, and they were asking me a number of different questions, and they asked me a rather simple question, but after they asked it, I realized I'm not sure I had ever been asked that question before. Surprising that I hadn't been asked. It is a very basic question, one we've all probably thought about, but yet just realized that it's not something I'd been asked before. The question was this, Pastor, when you pray for your children, what do you pray It didn't take me very long to answer. Of course, there are just basic uh, things that I pray for them that are changing all of the time. We all have changing needs. Our children have changing needs. What my 13-year-old needs is different than what my 2-year-old needs. And uh, so we pray for different needs along the way. But there are two things I always pray for my children. The first one is I pray that God's kingdom would come in their heart. Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. And what that means in terms of our children is I'm praying that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ, would invade my children's hearts. That Christ would be their king and Christ would be their Lord. And he would come and take over every ounce of their being that God's kingdom would come. The second prayer I pray every day, I pray that they would simply love God. Now, I don't, I don't pray that just because it's kind of a simple way to cover all the bases, right? I mean, the Lord says that all of the commands are summed up in that one, so you could just say, well, love God. That covers it. I'm not just praying because it's kind of the easy way out. I'm not praying it because it is uh, the first and foremost commandment, and then everything else flows out of that. I'm not even praying it just in a trite, casual way because that's just the first thing that comes to my mind, oh, that they would love God. I pray that my children would love God because the love of God is a root. It's a root. I I want them to demonstrate all kinds of life-giving, Holy Spirit, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting fruit. But I know that in order for them to produce that fruit, it has to come from a root. And the root is the love for God. And, and I do fear, as my kids are raised in church and around the things of the Lord, and even pastors' children, but all of our children face this temptation, that they might somehow, growing up in the church, learn to just play the game. People do it all the time. They pray a prayer when they're young, they get baptized, they memorize their verses, they just learn how to do the right things. And what we don't realize, because we can't see, it will eventually be exposed, is that there's nothing really going on in their heart, they just learn to do what they were supposed to do. And there are some children who are more, uh, kind of tend more towards being rule followers, and you even have to be more careful there, because they just want to do what's right, and please mom and dad, and please their teachers, and I fear for our children. That they might somehow in the midst of being around all they're around just learn how to do what's expected of them. But that's not what I want from them. What I want from them, listen, is that they might actually enjoy God. 
that they would enjoy God, that God would be enjoyable to them, that they would spend time with God, not because they have to, and not because it's expected, not because we told them to have a quiet time, listen, but because they actually love him. And they're obeying him and submitting to him and honoring him. Why? Because they have in their heart a genuine love for God. Not just external conformity to the things of God, but a heart that loves him. It seems to me that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was thinking as he prayed for his beloved Philippians. Now we've already looked at the first few verses. What Paul has said starting in verse 3 is this. He says, Philippians, I think about you all the time. And every time I think of you, I thank God for you. I'm filled with thanksgiving for you. And not only that, but I'm filled with joy for you, that I have been given the affection of Jesus Christ for you. I have deep-rooted affection for you. And the reason is, is because you've partnered with me in the gospel. We're, We're partners here. Uh, We've been together in the furthering of the gospel. You've supported me. I've supported you. And when I think about the way we've been together, I just can't help but to thank God for you. And I can't help but to be filled with joy and just deep affection for you. And then Paul prays for them. And look at how he prays for them, starting in verse 9. So he said, "I, I think about you. I thank God for you. I pray for you. I'm filled with joy. And here is what he's praying in verse 9. It is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled, listen, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you were to evaluate all of the prayers of the Apostle Paul, you would find that in most of them, particularly in the book of Ephesians as well, this is where he begins to pray. He actually prays in Ephesians 3 that you would be rooted and grounded in love. He begins with with love because he sees love as the root of everything else. Does he want to see other things? Absolutely. But he knows that those things flow from a heart that is abounding in love. So this morning, I want us to do something that is right to do because this is the word of God, but something I would encourage you not to do except when it's in scripture. We are going to evaluate a prayer. So I don't want you to do this in Sunday school, okay? I don't want you to do this at the dinner table. I don't want you to critique someone's prayer, write down the things they did right, the things they did wrong. We don't like those kind of people. They're self-righteous and frankly annoying. So I'm not teaching you to to, to tear apart everybody's prayers and evaluate them. But this is the word of God, amen? And Paul is not just praying for them. His prayer is from the heart of God. And in this prayer, he's not only showing us how to pray, even deeper than that, what you're going to see here is Paul is mapping out for us how it is that we live a life that is bearing God-glorifying fruit. So let's look at it together. He begins his prayer in verse 9 by praying that they would have a life of abounding love. If you're taking notes, that's the point of verse 9. A life of abounding love. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. They say, well, what's he talking about? Love for God or love for others? He doesn't 
clarify, and frankly, I'm not sure it matters. These are inseparable commands to love God and love others. When Jesus was asked for one command, he gave two, because you cannot separate them. Read the book of 1 John. If you say you love God, but you don't love others, then you don't love God. So these things go together. I really believe that what he's focusing on here is love of God. And the reason is, is because of the way in which he shows us this kind of love changes us. But either way, he's praying that the love would abound. Now, do you see that word? I'm reading from the ESV. It says that your love may abound more and more. That's a great word. It's the word that's used in John chapter 6, verse 12. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, remember he has five loaves and two fish. And he takes the five loaves and two fish and he feeds 5,000 people with it. But do you remember at the end of the story it says at the end of the miracle they had 12 baskets of leftovers. I don't know why. I don't know if Jesus is just showing off or what he's doing. But 12 baskets of leftovers. And I really think part of the point of that is Jesus is saying... Not only am I able to do this, I'm able to do abundantly more than this. Like, I can't just meet the need. I can go above and beyond the need. And when it says 12 baskets of leftovers, it's the same word used here when it says your love may abound. More than expected. More than enough. An overabundance. 12 baskets of abounding food. This is what he's saying that there is more than enough. Paul is saying, I, I'm praying in that way that there might be that kind of abundance of love in your heart. It is the same word used in Ephesians 1.8 when Paul says that God has lavished his grace upon us. He's just opened up heaven and poured out grace. So much so that as it says in Romans chapter 5 that where sin increases, grace, same word here, abounds more and more. So where your sin abounds, amen, Okay, where your sin abounds, amen, grace abounds even more. We can't just amen the grace without amening your sin. So your sin abounds, but as we have been singing, his mercy is more. So wherever sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Those are the words that Paul uses right here. He's saying there is this abounding grace, this abounding love, this overflowing abundance. Paul says, that's what I want your love to be like. Twelve baskets of love. Not only enough, but more than enough love. An abundance of love. And then he says that it might abound more and more. Paul loves to do this. He he loves to kind of heap words one on another, really unnecessarily in some ways, but just to make his point that I'm asking for more and more because it would have been sufficient to say abounding, but he says abounding more and more. So as you continue to love, love more, and then love more, and then love more, and more, and more, and more. I think it's a great reminder that we never arrive at love. We never arrive. I mean, the command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We have not come to the end of our capacity to love until we love that way. And the reason that's the greatest commandment is because it's a command to give ourselves fully and completely every ounce of our being to God. That he would have all of us, all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my strength, all of it poured out unto him. Until until I come to that point, I haven't come to the end of love. And none of us have come to that point. 
there's always room to love more. I mean, hopefully you thought about this some Valentine's Day this week. I've been married to Andrea almost 15 years, and yet still this week we sat down and I said, Andrea, how can I love you better? Because after 15 years, I, I still don't quite have her figured out. She's not complicated. I'm just slow, and she's a woman, and I don't know. I don't get it. Like, I, I just think I get it, and then I realize, no, that doesn't make me feel loved. Well, just help. Just help me. Just, I want to learn better. And the, and, and the truth is, this changes from time to time, and so it should in different stages of life. But what I'm saying to Andrea is, I, I want to know how to love you more. And so it is, what we're saying to the Lord is, Lord, I, I want to love you more and better, and I don't know how to do that, but would you help me? And Paul is saying, I want your love to grow, to abound. And then he says how it happens. Look at the text. It is my prayer that your love may abound, an overabundance of love in your heart with knowledge and discernment. That word knowledge is only used in Scripture to refer to the knowledge of God. Paul uses it in Philippians 3.10 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, the way in which our love abounds is through, listen, the knowledge of God. As you grow to know him more, you will grow to love him more. There is no abounding in love without abounding in knowledge. Just last week I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who was very um, just connected to a certain ministry. But he was never really that involved. He had just kind of been a part of it a little bit, but never kind of deep in the, in the inner workings of this organization. And he's loved this organization, given a lot of time and energy to it. But he was asked last year to get very involved. I mean, deep involved in this organization. And I was talking to him as he communicated to me that the deeper he got in, the more he grew cynical and really it diminished his respect and love for this organization. Now, you know what I'm talking about. This has happened to you before, but I'm here today to assure you that the deeper you go in the knowledge of God, the deeper you will love him. You will not grow to be cynical. You will grow to love him more and more and more. It is impossible for him to disappoint. You come to know him and you love him more. And as you seek the knowledge of God, to know him is to love him. It says, so grow in that love by knowledge and then discernment. Discernment is really a reference to a type of knowledge that comes from experience. So not just a head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of the love of God. So you're walking with him and you're trusting him and you're testing him and you're doing what he calls you to do. You're obeying him and you're learning about him. And listen, as you're walking with him and as you're seeking him, what's happening is you're growing in love. So Paul is saying, my prayer for you is that you would have an abundance of love in your heart, more and more and more increasing love or God that is coming through the knowledge of God and the experience of what it means to walk with God. God. And that kind of love produces something. Look at verse 10. So that. Now this is significant. Because he's saying that I want you to have this kind of abounding love. So go hard after God. Seek God. Learn to love him more. So that what? You may approve what is excellent. So if his prayer in verse 9 is a life of abounding love, the point of verse 10 is so that you might have a life of good decisions. 
Write that down, verse 10. That's the point of verse 10. A life of abounding love is leading to a life of good decisions so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, this is going to get real practical, and I want you to stay with me because what we're going to say next is something all of us need. The ability to know what's right and do it. When he says so that you might approve what is excellence, the same word he uses in Romans 12 when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed so that you might approve what is the will of God. How do you know the will of God? Well, apparently, the will of God is known to someone who is living a life of worship. It's the word he used in 2 Corinthians 13 when he says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine your own self. Look at yourself. Look at the way you're living, the way you're thinking and feeling. It's the word he uses in Ephesians 5.10 when he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. John uses it in 1 John 4.1 when he says, test every spirit. It's a word that means to think about something carefully. To look at things and be able to distinguish what is right, what is good, and what is best. We're called in all of these scriptures to approve ourselves and the spirits and the will of God and what pleases the Lord. And what this is saying is that we need to learn how to approve what is excellent. You've heard it said before, the greatest enemy to the best is the good, right? So what Paul is saying is that I want you to learn how to be able to see in every decision what is the best possible decision to make. What's superior, not to see the good, but to see the best. And Paul says that as you learn to abound in love, what happens then is that you begin to know how to make the best possible decision. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Because every moment of life is a decision, and every single decision is heading you in a certain direction. We always think about the big decisions. I'm not thinking about the big decisions. I'm thinking about the decisions you make when you get in bed every night. Will I read? Will I talk to my wife? Will I watch Netflix? That's a decision. It's a simple decision. But it does, in a very subtle way, change the trajectory, doesn't it? And then I'm going to set the alarm. And am I going to set the alarm for time in the morning to spend time with the Lord? Or am I going to set it just in time to get up and exist and survive? Those are little decisions that set the direction. And I get up in the morning and I, I can choose whether I'm going to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. You realize that's a decision you make in the morning. Am I going to choose to walk in the spirit in this moment or to walk in the flesh? And then you decide what you're going to listen to on the way to work or to take the kids to school. And then you're going to decide how to respond to different circumstances. You're going to decide what to do and what not to do. Do you realize... Life is just nothing but a bunch of decisions. And there are no insignificant ones because every one of them is turning you in a certain direction. And do you realize what Paul is saying here is that Paul understands the power and influence of decisions. And he wants them to be able to always know what is the best decision. But he doesn't pray that they would learn how to make good decisions. He prays that they would love God. And as they learn to love God, to go deeper in their obedience and affection and desire for God, the result is that a life of growing love ends up in a life of better decisions. 
How many of you made some bad decisions? Can I see a hand? Twelve of you. Can I get a little better than that? How many of you, I just make sure you're awake. This is not just, how many of you made some bad decisions? How many of you would like the ability, just like quickly, moment by moment, to see what is best and make the best decision? How many of you would like that ability? That would be fantastic. The way you do that, not through any leadership book, not by your blink, your ability to see things quickly and know how to do what's right, you get there by a deepening love of God. It's the root of good decisions. And so as I am growing in love, I don't even realize it's happening. But all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, I'm making better decisions. Why? Because the very life of God is living through me. I'm more informed by the word of God. And things are becoming clearer and easier in my ability to make decisions. But Paul says, I want you to have a life of abounding love. Why? So that... You might have a life of good decisions. Now look at what's next. And so, you see that in the middle of verse 10? And so, what happens as another result, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it's building here. Do you see what's happening? I, I'm praying that you would have a life of abounding love. Why? Because that's going to lead you to a life of good decisions. And you know what that's going to lead you to? That's going to lead you to a life of God-glorifying fruit-bearing. That your life is now going to bear the fruit of righteousness and godliness and holiness and purity. Some of you are trying so hard to fight sin and to kill sin. You have besetting sins. Here's the problem. You're trying to do all of the practical things to get rid of your sin, and you should do that. But you have missed that the fruit of a righteous life comes first from the cultivation of a love of God. So you can't just try to try to deal with the sin, you deal with the heart. And so if Paul is praying for the fruit of abounding love, which leads to the life, I mean the life of abounding love, which leads to the life of good decisions, then it ends in a life of glorifying fruit. That's the next point from verses 10 and 11. That the result is that you might be pure and blameless, holy, righteous before God and man. That you might be ready for the day of Christ Jesus. We just sang about the day of Christ Jesus. He's coming. And the question Jesus always tries to get us to ask. By the way, the whole idea of constantly trying to figure out the times and the seasons. And when it is Jesus is going to come back. All that, that, that is never what we're called to do at the end times. Never. It's just fascinating to me. All the conferences. Trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. When he specifically says, it is not for you to know, Acts 1, the times and the seasons. His point is always this. Be ready. Just be ready. Like if we knew, that would undermine the whole need to be ready. Because then we just not be ready until he comes. We just wait. I know you. I know me. We just wait. He's coming tomorrow. It's time to get right. No, he says, he may come in five minutes, so be ready. He's saying you're, you're ready for the coming of Christ because you're living a life 
that is abounding in the fruit of righteousness. That you're just overflowing in good works to the extent, listen, look at the end of verse 11, that Jesus Christ is living through you and your life is to the glory and praise of God. You are created for the glory and praise of God. And so it is all of a sudden your life is now transforming into such a life where those who see you are seeing the very life of Christ and you're abounding in God-glorifying fruit. So how does that happen? I mean, you just see someone and you, you say, man, their life just kind of emanates Jesus. And they, when they talk, it's just incredible. And you just, man, you, you spend five minutes with them and you just want to love Jesus more. How did they become that way? And I'll tell you, there's no secrets. They just sought to love God. <laughs> they didn't work on the externals as much as they worked on the internals. And I want you to notice a very important word in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. And here's what it says in the ESV. And so be pure and blameless. What's happening here? is you're becoming something. You're not just doing better things. You're becoming something. That you're growing in your love for God and you're obeying him more and you're seeking him more and all of a sudden you're realizing that, that some work is going on and you're becoming something different than you ever were. Sin begins to lose its appeal and righteousness becomes to the desire of your heart and you're becoming something different. Why? Because you have cultivated a love for God. And all of a sudden, in this prayer, Paul maps out for us how to live a life of God-glorifying fruit. Where your life reflects Jesus and where your life is constantly producing the fruit of good works. He just maps it out for us. It works with a life of abounding love, just seeking to love God, to give myself fully to him, to obey him in the little things, to learn to, as I spend time with him and walk with him, to enjoy him more, all of a sudden leading me to a life of better decisions, all of a sudden leading me to a life of God-glorifying fruit. What Paul shows us is the fruit of abounding love. As I'm thinking about this this week and I'm just challenged by it because I, listen, listen to me, all of us have a tendency to just work on the externals, don't we? We just, we love to work on the externals. By the way, we love to get our children just to work on the externals. Just, I don't care what your heart's doing, just do better. We do this. We act like this. But you know what this prayer reminds me of? It reminds me that when it comes to our life, God always works from the inside God's ultimate concern is not to just get you externally cleaned up. God has no desire for you to come here and put on a show and externally look like everything is good. God sees the heart. He knows the heart. And what he wants to change is your heart. God, listen, is not just interested in good people. Listen to me very carefully. He's, he's interested in you. He's actually interested in you. 
can I just say for a moment to those of you who are unbelievers, maybe you're not following Jesus Christ, maybe you think you're a believer, but you're not following Jesus Christ, or maybe you're still investigating, can I just say, our desire here as a church is not to get you to dress in any certain way or to simply do a number of right things. Our desire is for you to love and trust Jesus Christ. And we trust the gospel enough to know that if you will trust in Jesus alone as the payment for your sins, if you'll surrender your life to his lordship, God will begin to work in you. As you seek him from the inside out, he will change you. Our desire is just to get you to Jesus. Just, just come and trust Jesus, and you will be amazed at what he does. He works from the inside out. It also reminds me that having one of these lives of great God-glorifying fruit, listen, doesn't just accidentally happen. I need this reminder. Because I think all of us would say, man, I, I, I believe many of us, most of us would say, I want to live that kind of life. And what we realize is that it doesn't just happen. We don't just wake up one day without any effort and just bear God-glorifying fruit. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So listen, God is working in you. He's working in you. Isn't that good news? Like God is working on you. Praise God, he's working on every one of us. But at the same time, we have a work to do. Philippians 1.10, we cultivate our love for God. We make the decision whether we're going to get in his word. We make the decision whether we're going to walk with him today. We make countless decisions that are all determining the direction of our life. And what happens is God is working in me. I'm joining God in his work as I'm seeking him. And the result of that is that I'm growing in love, able to make better decisions, and then living a life that bears Paul simply prays this because he, listen to me, he loves them. He loves them and he longs for them to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. And in the same way, let me say to you, God is inviting you this morning, every one of you. It doesn't matter if you've walked with Jesus for 40 years or you've never walked with Jesus. This morning, the invitation is God is inviting you into greater intimacy with him, to know him to experience him, to learn to love him. And as he begins to cultivate that in your heart, you begin to change. The only invitation this morning is God by his spirit saying, come to me, just trust me, come to me. Because God knows when you start to taste Jesus Christ, you won't want to taste much else. He is good and he is satisfying. He is begging you with this glorious long-term vision of a life that bears fruit to begin by coming to Jesus and going hard after him. That's the invitation. Just come, get intimate, get close, trust him enough to open up your life to him and let him do his work as you seek.